Welcome to the Susquehanna Valley Baptist Pulpit, preaching a life worth living, abundant life in Christ. And now the message. You hear in Matthew chapter 6, this is part of the Sermon on the Mount, put a ribbon in there and turn over just to one passage over in James. And I want to use that, and then we're going to come right back to Matthew. But turn, if you will, to James, the fifth chapter of James. And I want to read part of a verse here to really set our minds on the message that we'll be upcoming this morning, and likely for a couple of weeks after that. I want to speak some time on the topic of the priorities of prayer. Look at James chapter 5. Drop your eyes down to verse number 16. Confess your faults one to another, and pray for one another that you may be healed. And note this last phrase. This is my emphasis here. The effective fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. That phrase, effective, fervent, it has the idea of energy, energizing. If you will, you could liken it on what happens when you go to turn a light switch on or in the inverse to turn it off. It's potent. And then he says of that, his prayer of a righteous man, it availeth much. That is, it has a great advantage to it. You know, as you examine yourself and your position in life, it should be your age or anything of that nature, and you might often in your heart say, well, what is it that I can do for God? There are a few things in life that we could say we have an advantage in. There's a time in life, as a really little boy, that I thought there'd be a great advantage when I became a teenager. And oh, how I, in my foolishness, would have, as Esau had many, many years ago, sold out. I would have sold years of my life so that I could get to that plane where I was an adult and I could have a car. In my naivety, I assumed that when you reach that age, you know, 18, 19, 16, 15, whatever it might be, various states, you know, that I had arrived. Because from my perspective, to be an adult was to have all the advantages in life. No boss, no responsibilities. Everything that happened to you was good. You could do what you wanted to, when you wanted to. But none of those years sped along until one day they arrived. And now looking back, I wasted a lot of time wanting to grow old. And now, you know, you stand on the precipice of the other side a little bit and you say in your heart, Oh, if I could go back in time. And if I wanted to advance in time with naivety, looking back, oh, how I really wished I could get a few of those years back just to tack on. One day, I'm sure, as life moves, I'll get to that point where there seems to be fewer and fewer benefits with age. Things hurt that I never even knew could have the possibility of hurting aches and pains, setbacks, even the great disappointments of life. It's hard as a child really no disappointment. But the worst thing that happens as a child is you didn't get the thing that you really had your heart set on for birthday or what have you. But then by the next year you forgot what that was. When we look at all the things in life that we could get advantage, something that would propel us, 
something that can motivate us, something that can calm us and comfort it. The Christian life, age isn't one of those. Not in all aspects. Finances aren't it. For surely they do, as the psalmist says, take wings and fly away. They run from us as a man that traveleth, you know. Money's not always the advantage they speak of. We look over and say, well, what is that great advantage? And I'm reminded there of that passage you read in James chapter 5. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man, what does it do? Availeth. And that E-F-T on the end, F, it means a persistent, continual state. It means as long as that man, that righteous individual is praying in faith, it continues to avail. It means that I am not limited on my number of uses by which I pray. They're not limited. Oh, so many things in life are limited. Speaking of age, you know, you get that health insurance. And you go out and break something, and you've got to go to a physical therapist, and they say, well, your insurance covers 10 of them. You get 10 in this calendar year. But what happens if you need 12 or 13? Well, the insurance has lost its advantage. You're paying. My, I'm so thankful that with age, the access to prayer is not limited. Its potent power is not reduced. Its availing essence is not diminished. The God to which hears my prayer has not limited my presence. And I would say that the more that I engage in effectual, fervent prayer, the more it becomes a state of life. The more it becomes something that resonates. It becomes, if I can put it in this, this simple essence, it becomes a, a response of my natural reaction to life. Oh, that men would pray always. And yet, too often when we get to the topic of prayer, in which every child of God would say it's important, I equally believe that it's every child of God that says, my, I need to be more challenged in my prayer life. It's a topic, prayer is, that's mentioned in nearly every book of Scripture. In fact, as we spoke last week on the 55th Psalm, and the 54th in particular the week before, of betrayal and treachery, of being pursued. Four times Daniel is, or rather David is recorded in 1 Samuel that he goes and runs and he prays unto God, beseeching Him. He is a man of prayer. He prays often. We look at the life of our Lord Jesus as He walked here upon earth before His ascension into heaven. He's often in prayer. Sometimes in desolate places, oftentimes in the wilderness, particularly in the 17th and 18th chapter of John. He's in the Garden of Eden, or Garden of Olives. You find Him at all times praying. In Scripture, sometimes prayers are recorded, like the Apostle Paul's prayer in Colossians chapter 1. So often we feel like the disciples of the Lord in the 18th chapter, the 11th chapter of Luke, where they cried, Lord, teach us to pray. Prayer is our availing place of refuge for the believer. The psalmist, speak, speaking of the Lord in, 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 a, in a little bit of a, a type of language, says, You are my buckler. You are my strong tower. I can run in unto you and be safe. 
But him this road, he's my refuge and shelter in the time of storm. Prayer availeth much for a believer. It gives me a place of refuge. It may be it gives me a refuge at time from family. For surely the scripture does say that when thy father and thy mother forsake you, then will I lift you up. It gives me a refuge from the actions of life, from the uncertainties of life. Ah, too often it is that we run and look into the newspapers to find refuge. That we go into the newspapers and that we bank and hope and trust that there'll be some article that will come across the airwaves or some article that is printed in black and white or some alter, uh, item that we have read by scrolling through the internet. And we say, looking for a time of refuge. Something that will lift my soul. Something that will give me optimism. Something that will give me the opportunity to smile throughout the course of the day. I'm amazed at how often folks go to the news for a time of refuge. And I'm not preaching against reading the newspaper at all. I'm simply saying that's not the same refuge as you find in prayer. I listened to a biography of a former professional athlete. He was one of the first men to ever make a million-dollar contract. Through years of playing basketball, he'd come injured. And he said, prior to his salvation, he said, every morning my wife could tell me what my mood was going to be that day. For I opened the paper, and I had set my heart as a young man to be the first man to ever make a million dollars playing basketball. And I attained to it. And my name was a household name. If I called his name, everyone in the room would know who he is. He said, I'd open that newspaper, and I'd go to the financial section, I'd look at the tickers. And he said, if they were down, I was despondent. If they were up, I was elated. He said, we eventually hit a string economically where there was just a lot of downward, downward, downward things. He said, I become so despondent, I thought about taking my own life. My, if newspapers are your hope of refuge, you surely, you surely will often be without one. But for a place of refuge, the child of God knows he can find it in prayer. And we're commemorating, what's that, this morning at 2 a.m.? The end of daylight savings time. Lord Jesus, the Father in heaven, he need not to adjust his clock to your prayer. You have Romans chapter 5 and verse 1, access whereby you may boldly come before the throne of grace. It's a refuge like none other. We think of prayer, it's a place of comfort. Peter, through inspiration, penned, casting all our cares upon him. What more comfort? I've stood at graveside as the grieving and the one that was there to encourage. And sometimes words failed me. And I felt inadequate to give any type of comfort. There's sometimes terrible things that come into the life of an individual and we would hope to say, I know what you're going through. Would it last if we would consider the statement, perhaps we have no idea what they're going through. We have no idea the depths of sorrow that they've experienced. The heaviness of weight that is upon their shoulders. Through inspiration, the Holy Spirit by Paul in 2 Corinthians speaks of the Lord Jesus being our comforter. By which all comfort gives. In the gospel, speaking of the coming of the Holy Spirit, 
The Lord Jesus said to his disciples, I will not leave you comfortless, but I will send another and he shall comfort you. What a powerful thought that prayer for a believer is access to the greatest comfort that a child of God could ever know. We could speak about prayer being the place of power. Ephesians tells us to put on the whole armor of God. Do you remember? The helmet of salvation. Feet shod with preparation of the gospel of peace and so forth. You come down in verse number 10. Before he gets to that, he says, Be strong in the power of my might. And then in verse 18, kind of encapping that Christian armor, he ends with this, With all prayers and supplications. And brethren, Ephesians 6 and verse 18, Pray for me. What's he saying? Part of the grandest armor of a Christian is the access I have with my Father in heaven and that I can be strong in the power of His might and endure, as many of God's disciples before have, great difficulty. Paul speaks of this in 2 Peter, or rather 2 Timothy chapter 4. He said at my first answer, he's before the, uh, the, the Caesar's tribunal, He's being interrogated for the single charge of preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lies have come up against him that he's seeking to thwart government and overthrow it. And none of which is true. He's hated by those that love a religion instead of the Savior, God in heaven. And he's forsaken. There are no doubt other Christians in Rome. Some of them might have been close to him. Fear grasped their heart. And he stood by himself to give an account, but he uses this phrase. But the Lord strengthened me. Oh, prayer is that place where in a time of great need I can call upon Him and He shall sustain me. I think of prayer, His place of wisdom, isn't it? James chapter 1. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God. He giveth all men liberally and abradeth, he'll never poke at you. He'll never chide you. He never braideth. And how is it that I gain said wisdom? I asked. I prayed. It's a place of understanding. Ephesians chapter 5, we're reminded to be not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. It's by prayer that I have a place of understanding. I think of the Old Testament saint, Lord, what wilt thou have me do? On in this. He goes, prayer, if you will, is a place of help. I've cited this already, but once more, just for memory's sake, Hebrews chapter 4, let us come boldly into the throne of grace that we may be able to obtain mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. David needed wisdom as he's fleeing all of those that would betray him in the wilderness of Ziph and of Moan and of Keilah. He prayed, Lord, I need wisdom. Lord, I need help. Lord, I need aid. And prayer was the venue that availeth much. It was not his own wisdom. It was not his might. It wasn't his intellect. And it wasn't his wallet. It was his access that he had to come before a thrice holy God and as a child of God of our own standing, we have no standing. Of our own ability, we have no ability. But through the power, the access, and the very presence and throne of God, I can ask. What a terrible thing to consider. As a little child, I, 
I remember going to visit this elderly widow lady. She was friends with my parents. Her name was Mrs. Jenkins. She probably died 35 years ago. Oh, widow lady, she had peppermints right on her counter, you know. And I looked at them, and I was going to ask for one. And my mom chided me for that. She said, good manner, son, you wait to be invited. She said, wait. She would have invited you to do that. So I tried to observe that in my life growing up and sometimes just wait to be invited. You'll die. No, I, I tell you, about Thanksgiving, you wait, you wait for that sweet potato stuff to come by. All the pecans on it, what's that called, sweet potato? If you wait, you, you ain't going to get it. It's not going to happen. Well, I think the presence of God and his scripture that when it comes to getting help, he says, ask, and it shall be given unto you. Prayer. It's a place of the privilege by whom, Romans 5, 2, we have access. Prayer is essential to the life of a Christian. Yet it is without a doubt one of the greatest missing links in living a victorious Christian life. Fortunately for believers, not only in scriptures is prayer described, the process is conveyed. See, as the disciples in the 11th chapter were told or asked, Lord, teach us to pray. Even as John also taught his disciples to pray. Lord, teach us to pray. That narration was what brings chapter 6 into mind. And it's preserved for you. The process of prayer is canoned in Scripture. As a child of God, I not only have access through what God did, He left me a roadmap to having a successful, rich, prosperous, availing prayer life right in the Scriptures. In fact, not only do I have the process, I have recorded in the Scriptures the experience, the actions, and sometimes the exact words by which the greatest prayer roy that ever crossed terra firma prayed. And of course, I speak of none other than Jesus Christ, who in the 17th chapter of John, he said, I pray for these that thou hast given me. The last prayer that the Lord Jesus would pray, that garden of Gethsemane, is recorded for me in the 17th chapter of John. And by application, he was praying for me. And I can tell you the exact words. As the salvation of all humanity rested upon him. As he was betrayed by one that was close with him. As in the preceding chapters, he would be doubted by individuals like Thomas. Thomas would say, you go away, Lord, where do you go? As he'd be misunderstood, tell us where you're going and we'll find the way. And he, of course, spoke of his crucifixion and resurrection and subsequent ascension. They were dunce and dense. And yet in the garden he agonized in prayer. As it was, the scripture records, great sweat drops like blood. Now friend, that's intense prayer. Not only am I instructed to pray, not only am I told of the benefits of prayer, not only am I given an instruction, but if I needed more, I am given a replete example on how I as a child of God ought to earnestly, continually press myself in the discipline 
of the prayer of faith. It brings us to Matthew chapter 6. And I'd like to start in verses number 7 and 8, but really verse number 8 and following, but I want to move up this morning to verses that we did not read. I want to look a little bit tonight, or rather this morning, about some priorities of prayer in verses 5, 6, 7. Notice, if you will, these are some of this, just before you get this model of prayer, there's some priorities that you've got to have before you and I engage in prayer. Not all prayer is efficacious. What's that mean, preacher? Yield a result. You can pray a long time, and that prayer will never be answered. You can pray and everyone can testify of your fidelity to prayer and did not yield a result. And the sister passage here to Matthew 6 is Luke 11. He has spoken of God's great care in chapter 5 and he comes to this and intervening between these and Luke, the disciple says, well, when you speak of prayer, how should I pray? How should I give? And the Lord has answered them, and though the parentheses there is not given, that is the continual fault. He says, notice in verse 5, and when thou prayest. And I pause there a moment. I'm not going to deal long with this. It's not part of the notes. Do you notice the presupposition that God has placed upon his disciples? And when thou prayest. Do you know what he's saying? I assume you'll be praying. Do you realize your God and Father assumes that you would be doing what He did? He assumes that you would give yourself to being submissive to the commands of Scripture in 1 Thessalonians. We're commanded, pray without and when thou prayest. The divine assumption that the Lord is making towards His saints is that every child of God would have a a desire, a sincere desire, not only pursue the doctrines of truth that are found in the Word of God, 1 Peter chapter 2, but also would have a sincere desire to pray. It's not too far of a consideration then logically to say that if there is not in my heart a desire to effectively and fervently pray, perhaps the presence of the Holy Ghost is not present in me. That's biblical vernacular for maybe. Maybe I'm not saved. A natural, this is a logical thing, a natural examination of the world around us, natural, is that little children love their mother. You can observe that in nature. You can see it in birds, Just by seeing insects in every form. That's why in Romans chapter 1 he talks about unnatural affection. That's what he means. There's no love for that which even is seen as nature. If you can see it in the nature that God has created, one must logically consider why is it that there's no desire in my life to commune with God? And when thou prayest. Note a few things here regarding the priorities that our prayer should should have. He says in verse 5, Thou shalt not be as the hypocrites are, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues in the corner of the streets, 
that they may be seen of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. I want you to note this, the first priority in your prayer, it must be genuine. It must be genuine. He speaks of these Pharisees standing in the synagogues. The synagogue was not the temple. The synagogues were erected all over the eastern world and even into some of the western world during the Jewish diaspora as they were scattered due to the burning of the temple in 586 B.C. by Nebuchadnezzar. That's kind of where it started. Really, you could even say it started a couple hundred years earlier with Assyria, but they began to be scattered over much of the four corners of the world. If you want to see that in full play, you go to Acts chapter 1 and 2, and when Peter goes to preach that marvelous message at Pentecost, he denotes all of these individuals that were from around the world that are now present, and they had all of these languages they had learned. They were demographically Jews, but they had spent their life abroad and they had come back for the sole purpose of the Passover and of giving of thanks at Pentecost. They were part of the diaspora. They were scattered abroad out from the land that God had given them from an inheritance. They're all in these great places. And as they would go into these places, they couldn't take the temple with them. So if they could find ten Jewish males of at least 12 years old, having been certified bar mitzvah, meaning a son of the law. In order to pass that, you had to be able to enumerate all of the calendars and the, and the days and the holy days and the history and of the 613 laws, 360 or so in the affirmative or in the negative and 300 or so in the affirmative. You had to be able to convey all of this. You had to know the ritualistic stuff. And to pass all of that made you a son of the law. And if you had 10 men that had been bar mitzvah, you could have if you will, a synagogue present. They would go in these places, you would have a rabbi that would teach and instruct. It was not the temple, synagogue. And yet sometimes being called up with themselves, they would read of the 18 prayers, they called them the standing prayers. The talith, I believe they were called. And they would recite them. And you know how you are when you get up to speak. You got something memorized, and you move at time from nervous to confidence, but the more you recite something public, why some of you, I could have you come up here and recite, uh, you know, the Pledge of Allegiance. If you remember, you probably did it so many times as a kid, you could come up here and you could lead with great grandeur. That's what the Pharisees were doing. Just praying. And they got used to men watching them. And the more articulate someone was their ability to pray, the more confident they were, the more it was esteemed that that prayer was efficacious, that it had some verity of truth to it. And that surely it was a man of God because after all, a boy in the Hebrew language or in the Greek language that was present, he was so smooth in all of his text and it was so beautifully and marvelously and wonderfully done. But you know what the prayer wasn't? It wasn't genuine. This is not, in this particular passage, an admonition against public praying. He's not saying, don't pray in public. Only pray in absolute private. The reason you know that is you examine the testimony of our Lord Jesus. He prayed in public. At the Last Supper, before they ate, what did he do? Before he broke bread, he gave thanks. And what was it he did? as he went to feed the 5,000 with the five loaves and the two fishes. And when he had given thanks. He prayed often in that sense. 
Prayers are an address to God. There is no spiritual reward for a gouty, heartless prayer that may be prayed no matter how articulate it might be. We will not take the time, but if you go to Luke chapter 18, there you have the publican and the Pharisee. And the publican comes and no doubt orates in his great fancifulness, how I thank God I'm not as his heathen, I'm an upright, I tithe, I'm perfect. And the publican smote his breaths. A prayer of repentance. There's the distinction. A reality of genuineness that is present. Not only is this not an admonition against public praying, it's not an, uh, an admonition against standing, a positional prayer. Sometimes we have the idea that we always need to kneel when we pray. We could look at this and say, see, he says, they love to stand when they pray, so we're not. In fact, as you go through, I'll give you a list of them here. Throughout Scripture, folks have been positioned in their prayers a number of ways. 2 Samuel chapter 7, David is sitting before the Lord in prayer. And Solomon, he extends his hands uplifted in prayer. In 1 Kings chapter 8 and 22, you find the same mentioned likely by the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 2. He said, I would that men always would lifting up holy hands without fear and without doubting. Christ knelt in prayer. Luke chapter 22 and verse 4. Paul knelt with the elders of Ephesus in Acts chapter 20 and verse 36 after he meets with them. In verse 36 and 37 it says, And they knelt around and prayed. You think about the position of prayer. This one would be quite distinct for us to consider. But Moses lay, lay prostrate before the Lord. Just laid out on his face. Deuteronomy chapter 9 and verse 18 and 25. Speaking of the gardens of Gethsemane, that's the exact format that the Lord used. The scriptures say it lay upon his face. Can you imagine? I dare say these next words. Can you imagine? But Isaac, you're going to open up the service to pray, and he gets up here and lays down on the platform. We'd all wonder what Miss Kristen had fed him last night. <laughs> but in this type of personal prayer, the position is not the final thing. In fact, I would note that standing is often in scriptures more common than kneeling. Jehoshaphat in 2 Chronicles chapter 20, he's standing. Hannah in chapter 1 of 1 Samuel, standing. Hezekiah, he's gathered around with utter destruction, gathers all the men, the elders of the city, and they go into the walls, standing in prayer. So this is not an admonition against standing. It's not an admonition, it's public prayer. It rather is the essence of a genuineness in our prayer. God is quite concerned with where your heart is when you say you're addressing His presence. That's a dangerous thing to consider because it is awfully easy to fall in the format of prayer and be so disingenuous and uninterested when we approach the throne of grace. To be so confused, to be so distracted, how easy is that to do? How utter important that praying and communing with a God of all the universe who knows the very numbers of my head ought to vote, calls me to be devoted to a genuineness and a reverence in His presence. Note verse number 6. A second priority. Genuineness. Note the second one here. Our prayers must be personal. Look at verse 6. But... Thou, here's that assumption again, when thou prayest. Enter into thy closet. 
When thou hast shut thy door, pray to thy Father which is in secret, and thy Father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. God sees what a man does in secret. Again, this is not an admonition of any kind that forbids public prayer. Jesus often prayed aloud, John 17. The disciples, particularly the apostles, often prayed aloud together in public. I think in Acts chapter 8 and 15 and chapter 16. In Acts chapter uh, 1 and verse 14 talks about they all joining, talking about the 120 of them that were up in the upper room after the ascension of our Lord. They all joined together in prayer. Later in the book of Acts, they were all joined in prayer in one accord, the Scripture says. They're on the same wavelength. Public prayer should flow out of a heart that has privately communed with God. It's impossible to have an efficacious prayer life if there is not at times, and maybe often at times, private prayer. You know, it's amazing too often. Who was it on Mount Carmel? Elijah? 450 prophets, four prophets of the Baal and of the groves, about 850 of those boogers up there. And they decide to have an all-day prayer service. And these prophets of Baal, they pray all day, they're cutting themselves, vain in their reputation, or repetition of prayers. And there's no fire that consumed anything. Then Elijah goes and he has them bring up these 12 barrels of water and they, they, I mean, it's all over the altar. It's saturated it. It's covered and trenched around it. And we often make much about his prayer. Particularly the brevity of his prayer. It's only about 64 words. And the fire fell. It's true. I would not deny it. It's in Scripture. But I would also challenge you to consider that that relationship he had with God did not come because he had availed himself only of 64 word prayers. What are you saying? The man was a man of secret prayer. Too often in our society today, fast-paced, we would look at that and say, look, all I need to do is pray. Man, I can just, whoo, I can say it and it's going to happen. The efficacy of prayer is born in diligence as it is born in secret. I would say of this, our prayers must be personal. Do not think that you'll have power in the time of need as a casual person of prayer. Prayer moves us and motivates us. We have the same amount of time as any person that is in, in a day as any person that has ever lived before us. We have the same amount of time. There's not 25 hours in a day today and there was 40 in the time of Christ. Yet he found himself always engaged in private, personal prayer with his Father which is in heaven. And I would say that that was the, also the same place. We look at Moses and his dialogue with God and how in those times where he needed wisdom, it seemed as though he could ask and God immediately answered him. That was not born in that minute. It was conceived and consummated through hours of personal prayer. A diligence deep within the secret place of the Almighty. No more does the gardener or the farmer just suddenly go out 
and pull ears of corn off the stalk. No, that process started long before. When he broke up the ground, when he planted the seed, when he built the mounds, when there was the prevailing sun that was upon it, and the consistency of the water, and the time passed, and soon there's great fruit. If there's a lack of fruit in our life, it may be because we have not had a personal, continual pursuit of prayer, even in the secret places. The presumption not only that we pray, but the presumption is there's a continuation of private engagement. Listen, folks, you can get really good at saying grace. Get it down, what's the old word, pat. And you can sprinkle a little bit on it and a little bit left. That's not what he's talking about. Friend, I, I would even go as far as to say just the simple giving of grace could be a habit that moralists in a society would engage in. But if you want prevailing, much abounding prayer, it starts deep in private. That's what you see of the life of Christ. Our prayers must be genuine. Our prayers must be personal. Notice, if you will, verse 7. The assumption again. But when you pray. But when you pray. Use not vain repetitions as the heathen do. Whenever I read this verse, I'm, I think back of Mount Carmel. Bell, hear us. Bell, hear us. I think about the religious prayers of Muslims today. It's almost set to music. I think about the Eastern religions and their mantras and their chants. No, our, our prayers must be accurate. I'm not talking to Baal. Baal's not offended that his people keep saying the same prayers over and over and over again. He's not a bit offended. You know why? Because he has ears that can't hear and eyes that can't see. The Muslims, Allah, ain't a bit offended if they miss prayer time. Not a bit. Why? He's a pagan god. The god of the Muslim came out of the moon god of Mohammed's ancient people. Do not think for a moment that Allah, the Muslim, is the same thing of the God of heaven. They are distinct. Ergo, when we come to pray, no vain repetitions. It must be accurate, that idea of vain repetitions, it has the idea of being useless, of being empty. We might even make an extension to say it's a faithless prayer. It refers to the use of the same words over and over again in a nonsensical uh, or idle babbling. That's what it means. Now I would note here, just as I did in the other ones, it's not saying about, it's not an admonition against praying for the same thing more than once. That's not vain repetition. Preacher, how could you say that? Because the scripture says this. I would remind you over in the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Paul speaks of a sickness and he said, I sought God thrice. 
Is that a vain repetition? I dare not say so. Over and again in the 9th, 10th, and seemingly 11th chapters, Paul talks about his prayer constantly for the unbelieving Israel. In Colossians and Philippians, he said, I thank my God upon every occasion of prayer for you. Think about that. Every time I go to prayer, I thank God and pray for you. Is that vain repetition? No. It's an admonition to be aware of, can I put it this way? Spiritual, quote-unquote, ruts. Listen to yourself pray. You say the same thing all the time? I guess if you mean it, make an argument out of it, but it's easy to fall into something and mechanically dictate it. Let me ask you a question. This isn't part of the message. and You don't have to answer me out loud. You think about how you brush your teeth. I am assuming that some people brush teeth. You think about how you brush teeth? Which shoe do you put on first? Which leg you put in your britches first? Which sock you put on first? Now maybe you've never thought about that. I was brushing my teeth this morning. Think about that. I always brush my teeth the same way. I don't know why. I guess you'd say I'd do it without thinking. How do you pray? What kind of thought life goes into your prayer? My friends, I got a whole book I can pray. Years ago, I was challenged by a mentor, a pastor. Said in your prayer life, sprinkle you some scripture in there. My response was, well, I can't do that. I'd, have to, I'd really have to think about it. And he just lifted his eyebrows at me. That's the point. Well, we run through it. And then I realized that as I pray and I think, I wind up thinking and praying. I, this is surprising. I catch myself praying what God wants. Which is that not precisely how you're supposed to pray? Now, I don't always have my Bible when I'm open, but I want to incorporate Scripture in there. Why? Because I can't think of anything better. I'm terrible at card writing. Come Valentine's Day or anniversary, I'll look at that card and I'm going to write Valerie something nice and sweet. Not, nothing comes to mind. One day, she knows about this. One day I was over at the flower shop and I'm thinking about the dreaded response of writing a card. It just doesn't come. And I turned and I looked, and here in the flower shop, they had this pretty little poem. So I took a picture of it, and I wrote that down in there. Put it right down in that book. She said, that's beautiful. Where'd you get that? <laughs> Didn't take her long to know. <coughs> Your prayer is accurate. There's nothing more accurate than the word of truth. It's easy to be called up with vain repetitions, bead counting, Number of Catholics pray that way, just going to pull those beads. Repeating the same words instead of thinking about what our words are or letting them directly just be moved by the heart and the Spirit of God working upon our heart. Isaiah says, The people come near unto me with their mouth, but their hearts are far from me. Persistence in prayer is vitally important. As I mentioned a moment ago, we are commanded in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 to pray without ceasing. This doctrine is taught by our Lord Jesus Christ in Luke chapter 11, verses 5 and 10. That's where you have the parable of the man and his neighbor. 
I got somebody here, I need some help. Do you remember this? And he goes again and again and again. That is not a command about knocking three times on somebody's door. It's rather a command about prayer and persistence. In chapter 18, the, the lady, the persistent widow that constantly comes before the judge, the idea is persistency in prayer. Luke chapter 18 and verse 1, we should always pray and not to faint. What if we just thought for a moment and said, instead of worrying, I'm going to pray. Instead of being despondent, I'm going to pray. Instead of being discouraged, I'm going to pray. Instead of being angry, I'm going to pray. That's what God wants us to do. We should always pray. We should pray in faith. We should pray a directing to the dress to God in heaven. We should pray in the will of the Son. We should offer our prayers with reverence and humility. Our reverence should be in submission to the will of God. It should not be hypocritical. They need not be ostentatious, but genuine, accurate, and personal. Prayer has to do with the whole of an individual. Prayer to the God in heaven involves your mind, your soul, and your body. Think of this nature. Notice in John 17 as he goes to pray, the disciples all gathered, went a stone throw further, and he came back, and what did he say? They were asleep. Try praying without engaging your mind and body. How easy it is sometimes just to slip into that place between sleep and wake, zoned out. Prayer affects the entire man. It is a result, successful praying, of a whole man, and therefore whole man is the beneficiary of all prayer. The results of prayer come to one that has given himself, all of himself, both my body, soul, and spirit. By the way, isn't that how we're supposed to love the Lord our God? With all of our soul, with all of our strength, with all of our might? Shouldn't it be in keeping then? We pray the same way. Giving our all to prayer. Genuineness, personal, accurate. Will cause us to find the secret of concentration, of consecration, and of successful praying. This is the arena that James referred to of the righteous man. For the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to contact us, please write us at P.O. Box 126-541 Harrisburg, Pennsylvania 17112 and visit our website at www.svbcpa.org. Until next time.